Um, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. And I will... Um, so we, we've been doing this series for a while, and we've spent the past three weeks looking at topics relating to the less tangible aspects of faith and God. And today we're going to look at a case study about a guy who wrestles with these issues. And I, I'm going to go ahead and confess, like, one of the reasons I wanted to do this series at all is because I have wanted to do a sermon on this passage since before we started this church. But I, I could never find a good series for it to fit inside of. So I, I've always, like, the, the story we're looking at today is a story I've always thought, like, this would make a really interesting sermon. I just don't know where to put it. So I didn't want to, I, I, I've had several points along the way where I thought, like, oh, maybe this next series will, will do it. And I figured, well, this series will work for this just because this is one of the stories that you look at, and it's not totally black and white. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of open ends, but, but it also, it shows a guy kind of wrestling with a lot of the same things that we've been talking about in, in this series. So we're going to kind of look at this story, we're going to walk through it, and we'll see what we can make sense of within it. So it's in the, in the book of Second Kings chapter 5, and um, I guess we'll go ahead and get going. So uh, I, I feel like there was something else I was going to say, but I can't even know what it was. Um, all right, so in Second Kings chapter 5, we'll just jump We'll just jump right in and we'll, we'll see what happens. So uh, in verse 1 it says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So automatically, right in the very first verse, we have some interesting information being given to us about, about this guy named Naaman. Oh, the thing I was going to say is if you have a bulletin, uh, this this story is on. Last week, we, uh, the, the passage was like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I figured like we didn't really need a bulletin because um, we're familiar with that, that passage already. But um, th this one, like not, not many people are like, Second Kings 5, got it. So uh, I, I absolutely made sure to, to include a, um, a bulletin this week. So automatically, in the very first part of the story, we have um, we have some different information being given to us about this person. First of all, we're told Naaman is a great man, and in Hebrew, this is the term Ish Gadol, and literally can be translated as man of significance or man of great power. So we're we're being told first of all this is an Ish Gadol, but so right in the first paragraph, we're given a point of attention. Naaman is an Ish Gadol, but also Naaman has leprosy, which means he has makes him masora, it makes him unclean. So there's a paradox. In, immediately at the beginning of the story, there's a paradox introduced into the story. We have an Ishgadol who is unclean. And these two things would have felt irreconcilable in the ancient world. Like in the ancient world, if you're an Ishgadol, you're accepted, you're beloved in society, you're revered in society. But if you have leprosy, you're unclean, which makes you outside of like regular acceptable society. So the Ishgadol who's unclean, so he's both highly regarded, but he's also kind of set apart in, 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 in a not great way. So in, immediately, in the very first verse, we're given tension, we're given a, um, a paradox. So then in verse 2, sorry, I'm getting a little bit distracted, I can hear my kids through the wall. So, uh, so and then in verse 2, it says, Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. So then, um, so Aram, by the way, so we can kind of get our bearings here, Aram is modern-day Syria, Damascus is the capital, and Aram is at war with Israel. And so at some point, uh, soldiers from Aram have kidnapped a woman from Israel, and now that sermon, that woman, sorry, that, sermon, that woman serves Naaman's wife. So we have, 
which also kind of creates a little bit of a paradox tension point because we're, we're told that this story is about Naaman, which makes him the protagonist of the story, but we're also told he has living in his house a woman who was kidnapped from Israel, which, by the way, if you're reading this ancient text in, in its ancient form, it means you're probably a Jewish Hebrew person. So a person who lives in a house with a kidnapped Hebrew woman, like that it makes it difficult to root for this guy. You know what I mean? So again, we're given a bit of a paradox. The story is about this guy, but also this guy is maybe not a great guy because he has a kidnapped Hebrew woman living in, and he's, he's part of, he's a commander of the army that's at war with Israel. So again, lots of paradox, lots of tension going on here. So then in verse three, uh, it says, she, this servant woman, servant girl, said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl in Israel had said. And by the way, when it says Naaman went to his master, who is Naaman's master? Naaman, Naaman is the commander of the army of the king of Aram, which makes his master the king of Aram. So, so, so basically, Naaman goes to the king and, and tells him what the girl from Israel had said. And by all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So, um, so there's a man of God in Israel who can help Naaman get healed. So, it, so this actually makes things more complicated. So in the ancient Near East, at this time, politics and society and religion are all connected. They're all entangled in real, like, specific, tangible sorts of ways. So interacting with the god of another nation could have been seen as an act of national disloyalty. So the god of Aram is named Ramam. And the king of Aram is named Ben-Hadad. And Ben in Hebrew means son. And Hadad is another name for Ramam. So essentially the king's name is the son of Ramam, or the son of God. Israel has a different god. Israel, Israel's king is named Jehoram. And the God of Israel is often called Yahweh. In, in, in English translations of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, it's often translated as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So um, each, and th this is the God of Israel. And so each country has its own king and its own God or its own gods. So apparently, Ramon, the God of Aram, is unable to cure leprosy. Or, uh, so the servant girl says, there's a guy in my country who actually could help you. And the king says to his general, go to Israel and see if you can get healed there. Which is an interesting, again, it's paradoxical. Because you would expect the king to say, no, our priests will heal you. Our prophets will heal you. you. You don't need to go to another place. Our God can heal you. But that's not what happens. The king says, okay, go, go ahead and go. And so he writes a letter to the king of Israel and tells him, you go and you see if the God of Israel can heal you. So then in verse 7, it says, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, which is a sign of like grief and like sorrow. He tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel seems wound pretty tight. Um, it, this, 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 this whole response is pretty extra here. So, um, he, he, so the king of Israel is having this big dramatic response to the request to heal his general of, of leprosy. So once again, the Bible blur, blurs all the lines. You have the king of Israel 
who is supposed to be the representation of the Jewish God of the Bible. Then you have this pagan king who believes that Yahweh might be able to heal Naaman. Naaman takes the trip, which is an expression of faith all on its own, and the king of Israel does not have faith in his own God. So right away, the story is flipping our expectations. You have like the, the, the people who are supposed to have like this great amount of faith, specifically the king, the king of Israel, showing no faith. But you have the king of this other, this pagan king, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, showing quite a bit of faith for, for the context of the story. So again, all the expectations here are being flipped. You have certain expectations that the people in the ancient Near East would have had, and it's all being sort of subverted. So um, so the king of Israel thinks, oh, he's just trying to pick a fight. He's trying to escalate the war. So then in verse 8, it says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house, which is a lot. So horses and chariots in the ancient world in the ancient Near East, these are elements of war. These are these are symbols of great like warlike power. This is like, I mean, the, the picture is painting is almost ca like cartoonish. It's it's like if he had taken tanks and fighter jets and parked them on the lawn of this guy's like little house. So you have this prophet who again probably lives in a small, simple house. At the door of the prophet's house, this commander of your military shows up with horses and chariots. So, um, just just to remind Elisha, like I am an Ishgadol, I am a man who has power. I'm I'm a man of, of great significance. So then in verse ten, it says, um, okay, so it says Elisha sent a messenger. Which by the way, it's, it's hilarious that this Ishgadol shows up on the lawn of this guy's house with tanks and chariots. And Elijah doesn't even go out to meet him on his own. He sends a messenger. He sends somebody else out to meet him. He, he doesn't even bother to go out on his own. So he says he sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, which is the nearby river, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. So Elisha doesn't even go out to talk to him, first of all, which is could have been construed as a sign of disrespect. And this is an Ishgadol. And Elisha sends a messenger. Doesn't even meet him face to face. And... Uh, and, he, and he tells him, go wash in the nearby river seven times, which Naaman is not thrilled about. This, this is not make, this, uh, this is not what Naaman wanted to hear, clearly. So then in verse 11 it says, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, I love this. wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? Couldn't I just wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So Naaman wants a giant ritual. But all this guy says is go wash in the nearby river. And Naaman says, hey, I've got rivers at home. What's your problem? Which is that's my personal translation of this. Um, but like, I've, got, I've got better rivers at home. Why am I going to wash in your river when I can just wash in my rivers? And he wants, so Naaman wants something bigger. He wants something that reflects his massive stature and presence. He wants Elisha to come out, he wants him to wave his hand, he wants him to do like a magic trick. And Naaman, and, 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 but, but he's told by the messenger, not by Elisha, but by Elisha's messenger, just go wash yourself in the river. So, and Naaman has, again, a very big emotional response to this request. So let's, let's just pause for a second and kind of find ourselves a little bit in Naaman. In, in this story for, for a moment. What, what we find a lot of times is our greatest growth 
comes from thousands of little decisions that we make every single day. Like I want this giant thing. I, I want like I, I want like a giant like lightning bolt from the sky or like a like a big event that like shapes and reshapes me. But the truth is that we grow in little choices that we make every single day. That there are these tiny gestures, these, these tiny moments that we have that we can make choices, and these choices add up to who we become. This, this by the way, is why pride gets us nowhere. This is why people who are full of themselves often struggle to understand the kingdom of God because it's always about humbling and submitting ourselves. This is why following Jesus is hard for people with power and status quite often because sometimes sometimes movement towards growth and redemption are small and humbling activities. And Naaman's having a hard time with that because he's an Ishgadol. And he's being told, yeah, just go go wash in the river. And, and Naaman says, whoa, whoa where, where's the big where, where's the big expression? Like, where, where's the big magic trick? Like, he wants a big event. And he's told, no, just go wash in the nearby river. Uh, uh, and so he's having a hard time understanding because of his power and status and because of who he's been, how he's been treated all his life. He's having a hard time seeing like this humble gesture being the thing that he needs to do. So then notice what happens. In verse 13, it says, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored to become clean, like that of a young boy. Then Naaman, as all, all of his attendants, went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. So, um, so this, this, by the way, is huge. This moment where Naaman says, I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. In the ancient Near East, people believed in localized deities, which means they believed that there was a god at each location. So then, so when you would go to a region, you might one of the questions you might ask is, who is the god of this nation? And then you would act appropriately towards that god. You would interact with that, that like one of the ways that you would interact with a, a new place is you would act appropriately towards that place's god. Everybody in the world at that time, or most everybody in the world at that time, probably would have thought this way. But in this small nation called Israel, there's a group of people who say, no, we believe that there really is a God of all places and all people. So when Naaman says, now I know that this God is the God of the entire world, this is actually a massive, profound historical moment. This is, this is, this is enlightened. This is a major paradigm shift. This isn't just, this, in, in a story, this doesn't just symbolize one guy having a, having a moment. This is, this is a major step forward in the way that people thought about the gods or God at the time. So, um, by the way, this is sort of an aside, but the story occurs in an area called Samaria. And later on, there's a story about Jesus having a conversation with a woman in the same region. And Jesus and this woman get into a conversation about where God is most supposed to be worshipped. Uh, in fact, if you want to hold on, we're, we're not done in Second Kings, but it, we looked at this a few weeks ago. We're going to revisit it just for the sake of uh, kind of tying all this stuff together. But in uh, John chapter 4, verse 19, uh, it says that Jesus is having a conversation with this woman in Samaria, in the same place where, uh, where Naaman and, and Elijah are having their interaction. So, sir, the, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that there's a place where we must worship in Jerusalem. So the story of Second Kings is a story about a prophet in Samaria. So now this woman in the Jesus story 
she's in Samaria and she refers to Jesus as a prophet. And the story of Naaman and Elisha is about a God who is worshipped here and another God who is worshipped there. And then there's this realization that there is a God who can be worshipped everywhere. And now Jesus is being engaged in a conversation in the same region about where God can be worshipped. So then in verse 21 of John chapter 4, it says, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So this woman gets into a debate about whether God is over here or God is over there. And she wants, in, wants to enter into a com common controversy of the day over where God is most appropriately worshipped. And Jesus essentially says, oh, no, no, all space is sacred. Jesus essentially says, these questions are, are irrelevant because all space is sacred. God is spirit. So let's go back to 2 Kings. So in 2 Kings, Naaman has this moment when he's realizing this whole thing is much bigger than I ever thought. This God is not bound by geography, which is a whole, which by the way, to say that this God is not bound by geography is, is a new expression at this time. So he takes a giant step forward. He has a moment of awakening. So then in 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, let's jump back in at verse 15. It says, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. So the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So he, he tries to give him a gift. Uh, and Elisha says, I can't accept any gift. And then, uh, and then Elisha, or then, then Naaman makes this very strange request. Like He says, If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth or dirt as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. So Naaman says, let me offer you a gift. Elisha says, I can't do that. Naaman says, I insist. Elisha says, no, thank you. Then Naaman says, okay, fine. How about you just give me a whole bunch of dirt for my mules? To which you, like, okay, that's an odd, that, that's an odd turn to this conversation. That's an odd request to have made just now. So why, so Naaman wants enough dirt for his two mules to carry. Why? That's, which seems like a reasonable question at this point. Here's why. It was believed that the soil of a particular land was connected to the deity of that area. So Naaman believes, so Naaman has been healed by this god, and he wants to take some dirt to, to, of land with him when he goes home. Naaman, Naaman, Naaman is basically like, look, if I can't be here to worship your god here, I want to take as much dirt as I can and take it with me. So he wants to take the dirt, and when he wants to worship this god, he's going to step onto the dirt that he got here so that he can worship the god of that dirt. So in some ways, he takes a giant step forward, that there is a god who is a god of all things. But in some ways, he's still kind of behind. He's, he's, he's still kind of figuring it out because he wants to take the dirt with him when he goes. So then in verse 18, we, we actually don't know if he takes dirt with him or not. That question is not answered. Um, so then in verse 18 it says, um, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, or the king, enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down there also, 
when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. So this is interesting, right? He basically says, I'm the king's right-hand man because he depends on me. And one of the things that the king does is bow down to Ramon. And when the king is leaning on me, if the king bows, I also have to bow to Ramon. So you expect at this point for Elisha to say, no, you can't do that. Like that, you can't, like that, that's not allowed anymore because you just had this realization. You want dirt for your mules to carry back. Like you, you can't just start bowing down to your other God. So notice what, but that's not what Elisha says. In verse 19, what does Elisha say? He says, go in peace. And another word for peace here is shalom. Whoa, wait a minute. Naaman just said, part of my job is to bow down to Ramon. And Elisha doesn't say, no, 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 you've got to get out of there. You can't be doing that. Instead, he simply says, go in peace. And again, peace in Hebrew isn't just a lack of conflict. It's shalom. Shalom means all things are right in the way that they're supposed to be. So when Naaman says, I'm going to have to bow down to Ramon, Elisha basically says, God is with you. And that's kind of the end of the story. There, there's, no, there's no black and white ending. It defies our expectation at every turn. You expect Elisha to say, no, 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 you got to get out of there. But instead he says, go in peace. I, um, I, have a, I know a guy, I used to work with a guy who um, uh, was from Hawaii. And um, he, he had to go back to Hawaii for a funeral one time. And, um, and he, one, he got into a conversation. He, it was um, kind of a hardcore, like, evangelical kind of space that, that we were working in. And, um, and he was concerned that when he went back to Hawaii, one of the things that they were doing, I, I didn't fully understand what, what he was describing, but he was saying that one of the things that he had to do was go into a Buddhist temple for one of the, like, for this funeral, for, for some of the funeral rituals that they were doing. And he was concerned that he shouldn't go into the, the Buddhist temple. He was like, well, is, am I... Is it okay? Am I safe to go into this Buddhist temple? And he, he and I were having this conversation, and I brought up this story. That's how long I've been wanting to talk about this story. Is like at, at another church that I used to work at, and and I I brought up the story, and I said I said I don't know. I, I said, but the thing is, in this story, the prophet says go in peace, because I think I think the assumption is that Naaman will return to Aram a more open-hearted, grace and peace-oriented person, and he will be more attuned to the ways of this God who has healed him. And Elisha tells him, go and be that person in the presence of the king of Ramah. Who knows what good can come from that? Maybe you can be part of ending the war. Maybe you can show grace and peace in a way that the king has never seen before. Maybe, maybe there's a new way of seeing it. You expect Elisha to say, no, you got to get out of there. But instead, he says, no, you go in peace. Go into the temple of Ramah and know that God is with you. Every single time there's an expectation in the story, the expectation gets split. And I don't know exactly what to take away from that. All I know, which is one of the reasons why I've had such a hard time getting this ser sermon into a series, because there's not just like this one specific way of looking at the story. There's all sorts of. It's like looking at a diamond and having having the light re re refract and reflect and come come out of it in different ways. The more you turn it. So at one level, it's about a guy who needs to learn that it's the small gestures that make us who we are. It's, it's, it's the little choices that we make every day. It's, it's going into the river when you expect like a big momentous gesture. In another way, it's may, maybe we're supposed to find ourselves in Elisha when, when we encounter people who are still sort of figuring it out and who are still sort of in, in, in the process of like they're, they're asking their own questions and they're getting to their own place. And instead of being impatient with people, just being able to say, go in peace. So 
I don't know what that looks like for each of us. Maybe, um, maybe it looks like, again, maybe it looks like showing a lot of grace and patience for people as they figure it out. Maybe it's having this realization that God is with us in, in places and in moments where we least expect. Maybe it's um, realizing that we don't need to take dirt with us uh, for God to be with us. Um, and maybe it's, you know, it's, it's these little moments. It's, it's the dipping ourselves in the river and not these like grand gestures that make us who we are. I don't know. But whatever it is, may you find yourself in the story. May we, may we find that uh, these moments shape us in ways that, that we perhaps don't even see in the moment. May we hear the words of Elisha in our, and when, when we're trying to figure it out and we're asking questions and we're trying to see like, what's the next right thing for us to do. May we hear the words of Elisha as he says, go in shalom, go in peace, and continue with your journey of being a person who is more and more oriented towards grace and peace. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this very confusing, very uh, complicated story. And may we find ourselves somewhere in the story. May we find that uh, we don't need to take dirt with us to be able to encounter you. May we, may we learn from the small gestures that we make every single day. And may we, um, may we hear you as, as, we, as we wrestle. May we hear you say, go in peace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.